to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapters 40 and 41. Jeremiah 40 and 41. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah, who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, Yahweh your God pronounced this disaster against this place. Yahweh has brought it about and has done as he said. Because you sinned against Yahweh and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Then Jeremiah went with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nephtaniah, Johanan, the son of Korea, Sareah, the son of Tenhumath, the son of, uh, sons of Ephi, the Netophathite, Jezaniah, the son of Maacathite, the son of the Maacathite, they and their men. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in, and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahikam son of Shaphan as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Now Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah the son of Ahikam would not believe them. Then Johanan the son of Korea spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Please let me go and strike down Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life so that all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? But Gedaliah the son of Ahikam said to Johanan the son of Korea, You shall not do this thing. For you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, 
came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. They bred together there at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him, rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, eighty men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria, with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of Yahweh. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said to them, Come in to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. When they came into the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. But there were ten among them who said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the cistern into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of the men whom he had struck down along with Gedaliah was the large cistern that King Asa made, had made for the defense of, against Basha, the king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. But when Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is at Gibeon. And when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Hahikam, soldiers, women, children, eunuchs, whom Johanan had brought from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Gareth Kimmim near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. For they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on us and grant us grace now to patiently sit under your word, reflecting, meditating, and receiving it whenever it's bitter medicine, it's unpleasant, knowing that it's inspired, it's holy. It's good. It does reproof. But it does so. It always hurts when it hurts. As a surgeon's knife. 
And so may we sit willingly under your care now, knowing you're good. In Christ's name, amen. For 38 chapters, Jeremiah has poetically and prosaically, prophetically, as far as the genre, prophetically and historically, made this long march towards the destruction of the city, towards the fall of the kingdom of Judah. Chapter 39, she falls. And you very well, at that point, could expect to turn the page and find the next, mostly blank, bearing only two words. The end. But at this point, 13 chapters still lie ahead. Everything's built up to this point, and still 13 chapters lie ahead. And also, chapters 37 through 44 form this distinct unit that's chronological, which makes it distinct from the rest of Jeremiah. It's strictly chronological. Although Jeremiah hasn't been chronological, everything prior to chapter 39 has been prior to chapter 39 up to this point. Like that much of it is chronological. But then all of a sudden that gets revved up and these last chapters have been strictly chronological. And you know, we've still got a few to go in this chronological section. And so you naturally are asking the question, well, she's fallen. Everything's been going towards this. What's next? What? Now what? what what's going to happen now? It's the question many of us have probably been asking ourselves a lot recently. <laughs> what's next? Now what? Jeremiah's been having something of a 2020 kind of year. Jeremiah's had something of a 2020 kind of life, but it's picked up in intensity recently. What's next? Just whenever you think things couldn't get any crazier, when you think you've hit rock bottom, what's, what's next? That's, that's where we are in this chapter. I believe that's precisely the question this chapter causes you to ask, not just once, but actually repeatedly. And it answers. But before we, before we get to any kind of why what's happening next, I just want us to see what's happening next. So this sermon's going to be largely teachy before it gets preachy. There's a lot of uh, groundwork that needs to be laid first. And I think this is a good lesson for us to learn, especially whenever you're dealing with historical sections of the Scripture before you start wanting to get it all about you, before, before you start reading it in the self-centered kind of way, to understand what God said, you need to hear what God said. Get all the facts on the table before you start trying to make sense of them. So our text opens with Jeremiah receiving a word from Yahweh. But where's the word from Yahweh? The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. And then it proceeds with this historical account. If you've been with us through our study of Jeremiah, your reflexes are well trained at this point whenever you hear the word of Yahweh that came to Jeremiah or the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. You've, you've heard this phrase or something like it, a formula like this again and again 
and again. And you're either expecting Yahweh to be speaking to Jeremiah concerning the word, or Jeremiah to be speaking the word that he's received. That's how your instincts are trained. Following this, no word. And you don't see any word until you hear this phrase again in chapter 42 and verse 7. And there, what your reflexes have been trained to uh, respond with or, or expect, you hear. Chapter 42, verses 7 through 9. At the end of ten days, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says Yahweh, and you hear the word. So here you are, you're expecting a word, and instead of a prophetic word, you have recorded history. What gives? The historical account is the word. The historical account is the word. You see this throughout Jeremiah, but this just makes it plain and obvious that the prophetic word that Yahweh gives to His people through His prophets is comprised just as much of historical reflection as it is prophetic instruction. This historical reflection is the word from Yahweh. And further, this historical reflection is Yahweh speaking about what He has spoken. This historical reflection is Yahweh speaking about what He has spoken. History is God's story. He's telling it. He's still speaking everything that is. As things unfold, that's Yahweh's general revelation given to humanity. This is God speaking what He has spoken. There's there's not just a, a general revelation, though, as this history is unfolding. This is special revelation because God is speaking about what He spoke that He would spoke. He would speak. Whenever Jeremiah was called, he had this commission. Chapter 1 and verse 10. I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow, to build, and to plant. So that's the result of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. And then the first prophetic word that Jeremiah is recorded as receiving comes in the next verses 11 and 12. The word of Yahweh came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then Yahweh said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. So he's spoken this word about the destruction of Jerusalem. And what God spoke that he would do, he does speaking, as it were. And now he's speaking about what he spoke. God tells you what he's going to do. He tells it, doing it. And then he tells you what he told you. He interprets it. God is His own interpreter. So, here, Yahweh is speaking to Jeremiah about what He spoke, this historical reflection. And immediately, understanding that, some want to discredit this word. Saying it contradicts chapter 39, 11-14. Where Jeremiah was released by Nebuzaradan there, from the court of the guard in which King Zedekiah had confined him. So there, Jeremiah is not bound. There, it's in Jerusalem. 
There, he's been confined by Zedekiah. Here, we're in Ramah. He is bound, and it's the Babylonians who have bound him. What gives? Well, there are several explanations, but the simplest is this. After this, in chapter 39, we end seeing chapter 39, verse 14, that Jeremiah is living among the people. The Chaldeans are rounding up large numbers of the people. And among the people that they round up, have bound, ready to exile into Babylonian, uh, Babylon, one of them is Jeremiah. And imagine how often the average Chaldean soldier serving in this kind of capacity heard, you got the wrong guy. I'm not one of those who is to be taken. I'm one of those that they said could stay. Uh-huh, we'll see. And how does all that get sorted out? Well, before Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard. Whenever you're rounding up a herd, quite often you get a few mixed in that you didn't want to pin. But you don't just release them all and then try again. You, you, you get some mixed up in that you didn't care for. And then later on you can deal with that. So Jeremiah is brought before the captain of the guard and truth comes to light. Yes, Jeremiah was not supposed to have been bound. He is free to stay here. But the offer is made again. But before we get there, what most sounds like a word from Yahweh is not found on Jeremiah's lips, but the captain of the guard's lips. So you're waiting. That's one thing I think that's crafty about the way this narrative is shaped. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. So your instincts are waiting for that word. And then what most sounds like the word comes from Nebuzaradan's lips. The pagans thought of the gods as territorial deities. So I don't want you to necessarily be thinking at this point that Nebuzaradan is a, uh, is a proselyte like Naaman. He's, he's recognizing what Jeremiah said. He's repeating Jeremiah's message back to him. And he's just recognizing it, I think, in the same way that the Rabshakeh uh, of Syria. You remember whenever they came against um, is Judah in uh, Hezekiah's day, the same way that they spoke of the local deity, you've, you've perturbed them, and that's why these bad things are happening to you. I think that's, that's most likely what's in the captain of the guard's mind whenever he says these things. But even so, his words demonstrate this familiarity with Jeremiah's message. Yahweh brought upon you what he pronounced. And this has happened because you didn't listen. You didn't obey his voice. He he brought upon you what he spoke. And it happened because you didn't listen. So God spoke an unignorable word of judgment because you weren't hearing his word. So he's repeating Jeremiah's message back to him. And then he lays the choice before him. You come with me to Babylon and I'll look after you well. Or you stay here, you report in to Gedaliah, dwell wherever you think right. Now consider, and and he calls for him to make this choice based upon what he perceives, what Jeremiah perceives to be right or wrong. If it seems right to you to stay here, dwell here. If it seems wrong, don't. Make the decision upon what you perceive to be right and wrong. Now consider everything that's laid out here. You've got this one guy 
in all this chapter, who only one who seemingly speaks Yahweh's words. You've got only one guy in this chapter that's, that's focused on with any, with any intensity who seems to make decisions not only based upon what is right, but he, he, he does so with wisdom and he does so with faithfulness and kindness. And the one guy who calls for decisions to be made upon principle and thought is Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard. And this serves as a backdrop for what's about to transpire in the rest of this chapter. One with this thinks of Abraham and Lot. Abraham putting the choice before Lot of dwell wherever you want to. Left or right, go wherever you want to and I'll take the other. Except Lot chose the Cush life settling in with the world. Whereas Jeremiah chooses to remain with the people of God, demonstrates the sojourning faith of Abraham. Like Moses, he refuses to dwell in ease, but to suffer with the people of God. And, and this is the Jeremiah who was imprisoned by his countrymen with the accusation that he was deserting to Babylon. He's imprisoned by Judeans with the accusations for deserting to Babylon. And now that Babylon is the one who frees him and promises him that he'll be well taken care of if he lives with them, now he chooses hardship with the people of God. I mean, he did have that piece of land that he had purchased from Hanamel's cousin, right? You couldn't give that up. No, that's ridiculous. Nebuzaradan releases Jeremiah, and Jeremiah chooses to live with the people of God. And now you see how you're asking yourself, what's next? Okay, Jeremiah's remaining in the land, What's, what's going to happen next? How's this going to play out? Following Jeremiah's return to Gedaliah, Jeremiah returns, you then see two groups come to Gedaliah. The first group is, are these captains with their forces. They're captains of the open, uh, the, who, the captain of the forces who remain out in the open. These are guerrilla kind of soldiers, if you will, but they're not active they're not campaigning against Babylon at this point because they're scared. They're, they're still like rebel forces, but they're, they're in hiding at this point. So they come to Gedaliah when they hear that he's been made governor. And Gedaliah instructs them, serve the Chaldeans. And he says, I'll deal with the Chaldeans. You settle down and farm. Now think about who he's speaking to. These are the men that Babylon probably at one point would have been glad to get their hands on. These are the threats. These men would be worrying about being handed over to Babylon. And Gedaliah is saying, you let me deal with Gedaliah. I'll stand between you and them. You just settle down, serve them, farm the land, and it will be well with you. And we're not told what they do, but as the story unfolds, it makes clear that they don't take up Gedaliah on this offer. But they're not antagonistic to him either. The best summary of their position would be, they're supportive but skeptical. They're, they're not going to settle down, but they're not attacking or provoking Gedaliah either. The second group then we see are the refugees who've fled to the surrounding lands, Moab, Ammon, Edom. They do return and they do dwell, verses 11 and 12 and of chapter 40, and they, they, there's a great harvest. They, they bring in a great abundance of these summer fruits. Things taken a 
turn for the better? Uh, uh, are, is the kingdom going to immediately start to uh, re- receive God's blessing again, to, to see His presence with them? What's next? Well, chapter 40 and verse 13, we read that Johanan, along with all the other leaders of the forces in the open country, came to Gedaliah Mizpah. So you, you get the sense of they've been gone, they didn't settle down, they've been gone. They're still described as the leaders of the forces in the open country, and they come back, and they let them know that one who was among their number previously, Ishmael, has conspired or has been sent by Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, to kill him. Gedaliah refuses to believe any of this. So Johanan takes him aside and says, just between you and me, covert operation, no one needs to know, not our forces fighting their forces, just let me go and kill him. Why should the people suffer? If you're killed, think about what's going to happen to them. Gedaliah still refuses to believe any of this. Johanan this exchange, just, it's so familiar. I don't know how, how if, you're, if you're really saturated in the Bible, how you can escape thinking of David and Joab. Joab is the shrewd man of action that is driven by, not by principle, but pragmatism. What will work? What will deal with this? And Gedaliah, while he may possess something of David's integrity... He doesn't have David's insight or discernment into the situation. While Johanan is sinfully aggressive, Gedaliah is needlessly naive. He doesn't need to go have Ishmael executed, but investigate, find out, know the situation. Clearly, it's better to err on the side of being murdered rather than murdering. <laughs> that, that's a given. But hey, why, why, not, why opt for neither? <laughs> why not opt for neither? Uh, so it's not as if the options here are just be murdered or murder. There, there's another option here. Wisdom. Godly wisdom. To be naively pure is better than to be murderous, but aim for wisdom instead. You remember whenever Joab murdered Abner, the captain of the, the Israelite forces, uh, we read in 2 Samuel 3, 33-34 of David's lamentation. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. So, one lesson to learn whenever you're navigating this world and you're asking yourself, what's next? What's around the corner is, yes, be pure and be wise. Be pure and be wise. Uh, don't be, there is that caricature, there is that stereotype of the naive, pure Christian that is so often portrayed that is aloof to the world. Don't be that person. Be wise. Understand the waters that you navigate and expect them to get rocky. Expect them to be rough. 
Be wise. Well, in the seventh month, most likely the same year that the city has fallen. You're not told the year. But the seventh month, which would mean if it is the same year, just a matter of months after the city has been leveled, Ishmael comes with ten men to Gedaliah, 41 and verse 1. Johanan is not mentioned as being here at all, so you get the impression Johanan came, he warned him, maybe he's there for some time, and he goes back out to wander wherever they're wandering. If that's the case, it really makes sense why Ishmael shows up now. Johanan's gone, Ishmael shows up, one captain leaves, another one comes, is how Gedaliah seems to perceive it, opens his house to him, and as they're eating bread, as these men are partaking of his hospitality, they rise up and strike him down, 41 verse 2. And Ishmael then, in apparent bloodlust, strikes down the Chaldean outposts there, these, these soldiers who were billeted there, who, had, who were kind of left behind to enforce Babylonian rule, you would guess. They're struck down, and we're told, all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, he, has, he murders. Now, as the story unfolds, I think it should make it clear in our minds that it's those who are immediately with Gedaliah that we're to understand as being struck down because there are those who have been taken captive to Ammon, which is just a clue for you whenever you read your Bible and you see the word all, let context tell you who the all is. It's all of those who were right there with Gedaliah. You get the sense these are the officials, these are the, the men of power, the ones that they would fear uh, any kind of insurrection coming from as they're going to take these people captive into to Ammon that are slain. Jeremiah isn't killed. There, there will be others that you see mentioned. So there, there are others left behind. But the next day, before word of this has spread around anywhere, 80 men from Israel, from the northern kingdom, from Shiloh and Shechem and Samaria, these, these men from the northern kingdom, they come journeying towards the temple to make offerings and sacrifices, 41, 4 through 9. And so you ask, well, isn't the temple destroyed? Yeah. Notice how they're coming. Their beards are shaved. Their clothes are torn. They're journeying to the temple in mourning and lamentation at what's happened to it. And as an indication of the kind of pagan influence to the north, they come with their bodies gashed as well. And that they're Further note that they're coming not to make bloody sacrifices. They're coming with grain offerings and incense. This is an act of worship and lamentation, sorrow. And whereas Ishmael previously murdered by betraying hospitality, notice that now he murders by feigning hospitality. Come, gather around Gedaliah's table, and it looks like he's in mourning too for what's happened to the temple. Seventy of these men are slaughtered and cast into the cistern. And ten of them plead for their lives. Hey, out in the field we have wheat, barley, oil, honey, which are likely not only their provisions, this, these are their, this is their offering. And you have to understand, in ancient culture, it's hidden out in the field. They're traveling. Here's a city we're coming to. Let's stash all of our stuff because we don't know What's going to happen in the city? Let's get a read on, on the city. So they offer up 
their provisions, their offerings for their lives. And then you're told that this cistern is the one that Asa had put there. Some 300 years earlier, whenever there were hostilities and frequent wars between Asa, king of Judah, and Basha, king of Israel, Asa had Mizpah fortified. You're told of this in 1 Kings 15, 2 Chronicles 16. That city is fortified in between the two. And now, the very cistern that was built up because of hostilities between Judah and Israel is filled with dead Israelites by a Judean captain. Both kingdoms have fallen, and you're still seeing the same kind of division and war within Israel. Ishmael then takes the rest of the people captive, which includes 41 verse 10, many royal princesses, sets out for Ammon, 41 verse 10. Whenever Johanan and those men who are with him hear of his treachery, they're ready to fight, they come to him at the great pool at Gibeon. And this very well could be the same pool where Joab and Abner met. And they each selected 12 men from their forces to fight. And as each contestant came to one another, they quickly slew their opponent, so all 24 fall dead. And so again, you have this image historically that, that's provoked in your mind, 2 Samuel chapter 2, of Israel and Judah and death among brothers. Brothers. On this day, though, Ishmael quickly escapes with eight of his men. Remember he had came with ten? He leaves with eight. 41 verse 15. The people rejoice to see Johanan, but they're soon, soon at a loss as to what to do next. What next? What do we do next? They're fearing reprisal from the Babylonians, and so they stay at Gareth Kimmim near Bethlehem. So they went from north of Jerusalem. They're now south, intending to go to Egypt. 41, 17 through 18. The people transition from the governor's naive purity to this captain's aggressive pragmatism. It's as though we've reverted back to the time of the judges where there's this constant change in leadership and you're told that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see this hostility and war within the people themselves. They're destroying themselves. This is the what. <clears throat> but why? Yahweh's not simply reporting this history <clears throat> to give an authoritative account for history's sake. <clears throat> Let's consider some facts. First, note how little this chapter concerns Jeremiah. It does set us up for the next two chapters where Jeremiah will be spoken of again and will speak. But just like in the rest of Jeremiah, Jeremiah himself isn't a kind of narrative focus of, of this book. In the, in the same way, whereas with David, whenever you're going through 
the David accounts, you know you're, you're, you're supposed to see David and there's some kind of typology and, and David himself is part of what God wants to communicate to you. Whereas Jeremiah, he's just the messenger. And so whenever he does pop back up on the radar in the next two chapters, it's not about Jeremiah. It's about his message. And second, these two chapters, while they do focus on Gedaliah, Johanan, Ishmael, they're, they're not that important in of themselves either. Gedaliah exits the stage as soon as he comes onto it. Johanan will see again, but he's not a central figure. There's no kind of typological significance. There's nothing being really foreshadowed in who he is, and we shouldn't think of him in that kind of way. And Ishmael, well, this is the last we'll hear of him. He escaped to the Ammonites, and we know nothing further about him. Why these two chapters? What is the word of Yahweh in this word? And as you read chapters 42 through 44, it'll make clear. Whenever we go there, it'll make absolutely clear the significance of what's happening here and what God intends to communicate. What's next? Judgment. What's the point of of these two chapters? It's to show us God has not finished judging His people. His judgment doesn't just level the temple and leave it in rubble. It levels the people and leaves them, as it were, just, just rubble. Chapter 24, instead of going forward to chapters 42 through 44 to see this, in chapter 24, we have God speaking about what He would speak and what here He's speaking about what He's spoken. Chapter 24, God spoke about the good figs and the bad figs. And the good figs would be those among the exiles in Babylon that he would bring back to the land. Does not say that he's taking them into Babylon because they're good figs, but that from among those he's taken into exile in Babylon, from among them he will bring good figs back. Then the bad figs are those left in the land. We would be prepared in some ways to expect the opposite because largely those taken into exiles were the rich, rulers, people of position who had been oppressing the poor, which was spoken against again and again by Jeremiah. So you might expect it's going to be the poor in the land among whom God would deal now. But what is going to transpire will show us that those who remain in the land, will prove to be just as wicked as their forefathers. And they will refuse to hear Yahweh's word. And whereas those who are experiencing Yahweh's judgment in exile will be shown mercy, these who continue to act in defiance against Yahweh's word, having escaped one judgment, they will be promised none. They've escaped 
exile in Babylon, only to continue rejecting the word so that they become refuse in Egypt. But whereas those who are in Babylon are promised mercy, these who continue in their obstinance and rebellion are promised none. What's next? Judgment. Derek Kidner comments, Sadly, the story of Jeremiah's life was to end very much as it had begun. For he had to watch the high promise of a godly leadership, first Josiah's, now Gedaliah's, come to nothing. For lack of any depth of godliness among the rank and vile, he watches it come to nothing. The prophet whose words had been vindicated to the hilt will bow out, still prophesying to the incredulous. Set at liberty by Babylon, he will be last seen carried off by his own people to the end of his days, not in the promised land, but in a land of false gods and broken promises. What's next? Judgment. German philosopher Frederick Schelling got pretty close to the truth unintentionally whenever he said the history of the world is the judgment of the world. Now he meant that in an anthropocentric kind of manner, I believe, saying that uh, humanity is judging humanity, looking backwards. The history of the world is the world judging the world. But the gist is pretty solid. The history of the world is God's judgment of the world. And yet, we're surprised again and again by what comes next. In this world, when you take a corner, don't be surprised when you run into judgment. Again and again. This world is living in rebellion against the king, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. And that way leads to death judgment, God's curse. But here's the thing. Schelling didn't tell the whole story. And these next chapters that lie out what happens next don't, don't tell the whole story either. Because once judgment fell upon the king himself, the history of this world is the judgment of this world, but once the king wrote himself into the story and bore the judgment of this world himself for his people. We easily expect the end to come after the destruction of the temple. We shouldn't be surprised whenever more judgment follows. What's surprising isn't what happens for this remnant that seeks refuge in Egypt. What's surprising is the grace that comes upon those exiled in Babylon. And that, that does take us to the very end of the book. The last chapter of Jeremiah ends exactly how we would expect, almost. Because it just picks up on the events of chapter 39, the destruction of the temple, and expands upon them. More detail. The temple's destroyed, the end. But wait, postscript, one more detail. The preservation of God's king. 
it ends seeing there's still this hope for God's king to rule among his people. God has felled the forest. And then he burns it over. And you're wondering, is there any kind of hope left after all this judgment? And from the stump comes forth a shoot that will prove greater than everything that's been lost. Because he will bear judgment in place of his people, instead of judgment meeting them at every corner, Grace will meet them at every bend as we go further up and further in. Because all things are being put under His feet. The judgment that's now happening is the judgment of the one who is your king. All His enemies are being put under His feet. And so whenever judgment comes in full, no, that means salvation coming in full. When salvation comes, when judgment comes in full, on the other side of that, salvation has come in full. So here's the charge I think we should receive from this. Remain faithful, as Jeremiah did, remain faithful in this life in hope of the life to come. Knowing that God's every judgment is only advancing His plan for His people. What can we expect? What next? Yes, judgment, but also salvation. In part, judgment and salvation in this life. And know that whenever judgment comes in full, salvation in full is on the other side. He is watching over His Word. He will perform it. He has spoken. He is speaking. And one day, we will hear Him whenever all things are made new. I believe, speaking in an interpretive way about everything that's been done. And so, let us long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of the crazy ride called life as you've allotted it to us in this time. Do not allow our faith to falter. Keep us. May we acknowledge you, Lord, over all. History is your story, and the future is your story that you've just yet to tell. You're Lord over every detail. And because of Christ, everything works together for our good. Even every judgment that falls on this world. And whenever your judgment comes with unbearable flame... To consume everything upon the crust of this earth. From it, you'll make all things new. Your judgment 
Even we sing your praises, Father. Even your judgment is for us. It fell on Christ for us. And Christ will bring it for us. Come, Lord Jesus. In His name, we pray, Father, may we be faithful to Your Word. Amen.